Welcome to The Key with IHE. I'm Paul Fain, a news editor inside higher ed and the host of this podcast. Many colleges were facing financial pressure before the pandemic, which has accelerated those challenges and stoked more questions about the sustainability of colleges with shaky finances. Nick Dukoff has worked on this issue with the admissions consulting firm he co-founded, Admit. The company has created projections on when private colleges will run out of money. We talked with Nick about those analyses and the gaps he sees in what students and their parents can find out about the financial health of colleges. I think COVID has made a challenging environment for higher education considerably more so. And if schools aren't able to reopen as many have planned in the fall, I think many will be facing very severe financial shortfalls that will be hard to cover. I also spoke with Barbara Brittingham, who just stepped down as the president of the New England Commission of Higher Education, a regional accreditor. From this perch, Brittingham has been well-placed to gauge the financial woes of struggling colleges. For a long time, and still now, I think families don't know, students don't know what they're going to do. And, and if they don't know, then the colleges can't know. She's also an expert on the triad, the U.S. regulatory system, and how it's tasked with overseeing college finances. We're lucky to get Barbara on the show, particularly on day three of her retirement. Let's get to the conversation. I'm speaking with Nick Dukoff. Good to see you, Nick. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. So uh, you and I have talked a lot about the, the financial sustainability of private colleges over the last, I guess, year. It feels like longer than that, even though I think it's less than that. Would you mind starting with Admit and how you became a player in this very difficult topic? Sure. So Admit helps families make smarter college financial decisions. And my co-founder, Sabrina Manville, and myself were both college administrators prior to starting Admit a little over two years ago. I was at Northeastern University and she was at Southern New Hampshire University. And in building our website, which helps students and their families understand things like college affordability and earnings outcomes and student debt, we started getting questions from families who were considering small private liberal arts colleges predominantly and getting questions about the viability of those colleges after the closure of schools like Mount Ida. And frankly, we just didn't have a lot of information to provide them. And so like any good researchers do, we dug in ourselves. And, you know, I know you've done now two big data polls to get a better sense of the financial sustainability of a sample of what, a thousand private colleges? Yeah, 937, I believe to be exact. So this last one, I think you said it was in May. Uh, what did you find? So we looked at the data that we had researched in the fall of 2019. And after it became clear at the outset of COVID in March that a number of the considerations that we took into account might have changed, things like endowment returns, things like expected tuition revenue, things like salary expense, we decided to put what we were calling COVID shocks into our model and trying to determine based on what at the time we believed to be reasonable assumptions, how COVID would potentially accelerate some of the changes that we were seeing with respect to college financial health. And that the result of that research was that nearly a third of the 937 private colleges that we researched seemed to have what we consider low financial health. And I know you all have tried hard to avoid fa false warnings, uh, you know, to, to be really conservative, frankly, 
in your uh, metrics. Can you describe how you did that and how how you feel like you, you fell with that one third number in terms of being too aggressive or not aggressive enough? Yeah. So things are just continuing to change. And uh, even with the hindsight of a few months, uh, some, some of our considerations and assumptions have changed. So for example, we expected endowment returns to decline by an average of 20%. And the stock market has been you know, somewhat surprisingly resilient and you know, a, a reasonably balanced portfolio of equities and bonds and US and international would, would be down more like 7% right now. So on that dimension, you know, maybe we were a bit aggressive in terms of the, the rate that we applied to that particular dimension. But I think dimensions like tuition revenue, which we had modeled to be down by 20% in this upcoming academic year, I still think those are probably about right. So all in all, hard to say exactly you know, where, how things will shake out. Also, our research didn't take into account the CARES Act which provided a number of universities money that have extended their financial solvency. And I think that's a good thing generally, but at some point the colleges will need to stand on their own kind of two feet financially. Yeah. I, I like the term COVID shocks, um, but hard to track when variables are changing on a daily basis, certainly from our perspective. Can, can you characterize, I know you didn't name names, on specific institutions with this last list. We can spare our listeners the full story of the previous one uh, that we we worked together on. But, you know, I think, can you characterize what type of institutions generally seem to be in the warning zone most? It really is hard to paint a broad brush. Our model is fairly pure in that it truly looks at cash flow. It looks at how much money a college has in terms of unrestricted net assets. And then it looks at what are their expenses and what is their revenue. And when, to the extent it's a deficit, they are expected to run out of unrestricted net assets to cover that deficit. So it really depends on how well the institution is being run and has been. It really varies from a geographic perspective, from a size perspective. But a third of universities, private universities, is a lot. Certainly is. It would be a catastrophic hit to the industry if the worst case scenario occurred for them. But, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the importance of, of leadership and decision making. Having covered this issue for a pretty long time, I increasingly believe that the president and the boards make a big difference here. Is that something that you share? Oh, 100%. You know, again, in, in our model, it, it looks at that deficit and then predicts to what extent that deficit will grow or shrink based on a number of dimensions. But uh, it's very unlikely that a college would just let itself run out of money in a straight line. You'd you'd like to think that the trustees and and the administration would take uh, swift action to address those gaps and and try to overcome any of the financial risks that it it might have. And, you know, I think you're starting to see this to, to a fairly great extent with a number of universities that have announced furloughs, layoffs, salary reductions, varsity athletics being taken away. So colleges are acting and, and they're, they're doing so to preserve their financial health. And, and that's a good thing. And that's the type of leadership you want to see people making the hard decisions to uh, ensure the longevity of their institutions. Mostly off the record or privately, I've had uh, mostly small private college leaders tell me over the years that the boards didn't take 
their viability seriously enough or didn't stress in the hiring process enough how, how, how much of a hole some of them were in. And I can only imagine that tension has gotten worse. Can you talk a little bit about the response that you got to this last list? I mean, uh, you know, obviously uh, the first time around, quite a bit of pushback from the private college industry, uh, even before you put anything out. Um, this time around, how was it received? I would say that higher education is becoming, you know, part of the national debate. And unfortunately, and, and, and I love higher education. I've committed to my, my career to it. I was a vice president at Northeastern prior to co-founding EdMed. Um, and I was doing higher education startup even before that. But I, I don't think higher ed has done itself a lot of favors over the last couple of years, you know, between varsity blues and, you know, student debt and what, some folks on the conservative side call, you know, kind of liberalism of, of higher education. I think no matter what side you're on, there's something to not like about higher education right now. And there's, there's not a lot to like. I, I think that's put higher education in the crosshairs. And so our list and our research, I think, have received a heightened amount of attention, even though our intent is simply to, to bring attention to the students themselves who might be considering these schools just to merely make sure that they're asking themselves and the, those institutions the right questions so that they're making thoughtful decisions when they enroll. You know, having talked with you about this over the last year, I, I definitely get your sincerity in that your, your motivation here is to get better information in the hand of students and families. That's what your admit does. And that's how you got here. You know, what's missing at this point? Um, if you're, <laughs> there's a lot of variables right now, if you're considering higher education, in terms of the financial information about the institutions you're looking at, wh where do you see the biggest gaps? I'd like to see some kind of risk sharing for institutions that, of course, have better information about their own financial solvency than, than a student ever would. And states and accreditors tend to have, in many cases now, similar information to what the colleges themselves have because some are now mandating that they can share more of that financial information, which is a good thing. I think more transparency around this is a, is, a, is a good thing for everybody. And when I say risk sharing, I mean if a student enrolls in a school and then two years later that school closes or merges and, and let's say the major, either the whole college closes or there's a merger and the major that that student was studying in is no longer made available, uh, I'd like to see more support for that student in transitioning to a school where they can continue their studies with no loss in time or loss in credits or loss in money. Because too often is the case where students are kind of left out on a limb to fend for themselves when this happens. And I'm very concerned that this might happen, you know, this fall, depending on, you know, how things shake out with colleges reopening plans. So I know states, state agencies tasked with being part of the triad that regulates higher education, uh, particularly Massachusetts, where you live. The accreditors themselves and even the feds have made some moves to try to be better prepared for wobbling colleges in the event of a collapse. That was before the, the pandemic even. How much more work do you think they need to do to best protect students and taxpayers? I, I think a, a good deal more work. I don't think we have yet a robust, certainly not a robust federal policy around this. And given that higher education is inherently, you know, crosses state lines, you know, most all schools have students from more than one state. 
you know, even public schools have students from other states, that this issue is probably something that should receive more federal oversight. And I think credit transferability is one of those areas that probably also needs more federal oversight, given the kind of regional accreditation and oversight that is generally provided for that particular issue. All right. So on this podcast, I I violate one of my fundamental journalistic aspirations to not make people speculate, but we're in an era of such incredible uncertainty. I think a little guesswork about what's looming is, is helpful. You know, how worried are you looking at the fall? And by the way, I should tell listeners, we're, we're talking on July 22nd, uh, planning to run this in six days. Uh, in, in the moment that we are talking, you know, we're tracking institutions reversing on their in-person instruction plans and going fully online, uh, you know, dribs and drabs, but potentially a lot more to come. Uh, how worried are you as they make these decisions that you're going to see widespread collapsing of colleges this fall? So uh, NYU professor Scott Galloway recently published his own college financial health index of sorts, and we did a lookup to compare his research and ours, and it's a little different because he has four categories and we have three, and he also includes public schools where we only looked at private institutions. But of the 70 or so schools that we both researched uh, that Edmit had as low to medium financial health, Professor Galloway had all but four in a kind of similarly negative outlook. So in other words, the schools that Edmit had as with a somewhat negative outlook, Professor Galloway also had nearly all of those schools as a, as a negative outlook. The thing that was somewhat surprising when we compared the data was that schools that our model seemed to indicate had high financial health, Professor Galloway had a number of them in his negative outlook categories. So in other words, his, his research index tends to be more conservative and perhaps with a kind of a more of a negative outlook than, than ours. And I think many thought ours with, you know, predicting nearly a third of private colleges having, you know, low to medium financial health was perhaps uh, aggressive. Uh, I think when you look at Professor Galloway's as being even more so, it's hard to say, but time will tell. And I think I'd love to see institutions survive. I'd love to see the American higher education system be stronger. It's been such a great engine for growth in this country since World War II. Um, and I'd love to see it continue to be in the 21st century. I think COVID has made a challenging environment for higher education considerably more so. And if schools aren't able to reopen as many have planned in the fall, I think many will be facing very severe financial shortfalls that will be hard to cover. One of the things that has struck me in interviews on this the show is you know, the marathon, not a sprint idea here. Uh, Tim White, the Cal State Chancellor, talked in that term of, you know, this is not going to be just this fall. We're talking about 2021 too. I mean, how, and, and you know, there are, unfortunately, to use this terminology, winners and losers here. Uh, you know, I think some of the institutions that are better prepared to do well online are are probably looking better right now. How much of a fundamental shift in the market do you see when we finally come on the backside of this crisis? I know that's a big question, but, you know, just as you anticipate, you know, iteration versus real transformation. I think there's a number of surveys that seem to indicate 
consumer preference around higher education is changing and COVID is accelerating those changes. I wrote an opinion that Inside Higher Ed graciously published in, in May. And one of the things that, a couple of the things that I mentioned in that opinion is providing schools with the types of offerings that would be more attractive to students, not just in this COVID market, but in any market would be things like more experiential education. Naturally, I'm a uh, big fan of experiential learning, having spent you know, nearly four years as an administrator at Northeastern, but also, you know, really being able to provide more mentorship and online access to what have historically been, in many cases, offline student success programs, you know, professional education, mentorship, you know, SEL support, all those things that um, students need and, and need, especially when they're learning, you know, in cramped quarters in their parents' basements. I think will 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 help students feel better about their decision to return to school, even if it's online. But students will return to campus at some point. You know, we will get past this at some point. To your to your point about it being a marathon and and not a sprint, whether that point is August next month, which I find a bit hard to believe, or or January, which you know I I still think might might be hard. But in any event, fall 2021, or certainly I'd like to hope that spring 2022, things start to get back to some kind of normalcy. Um, And the schools that make long-term investments in not just online education, but online supports for students who may be learning from anywhere, I think those are the schools that are going to have the best shot at standing out in this market. Really good point. Uh, Nick, I've always appreciated your willingness to uh, duck into the the fun-filled media world uh, discussing these really challenging topics. So uh, thanks for your time, your expertise, and as always, uh, let's keep in touch. It's going to be an interesting few months. Thanks, Paul. Be well. If you're looking to go even more in-depth in IHE's news coverage, check out our special reports. These deep dives feature rich data and reporting, as well as thoughtful, substantive analysis you can trust. Visit InsideHigherEd.com backslash special dash reports to view the topics we've covered and to purchase the report that best supports your area of work or study. Barbara Brittingham, very good to see you. Nice to see you. And for our listeners, you are on day three of a post-accreditor life. How's it going so far? So far, so good. The first day was vacation and now just a couple little things each day, so I'm kind of easing into it. Well, we're happy to welcome you for such a cheerful, easy topic uh, that we're about <laughs> to discuss. So, you know, you being the head of the New England Accreditor have been intimately involved in work to try to better prepare for possible college closures, both from a regulatory standpoint and from a consumer information perspective. Can you talk a little bit about what has happened in the last year to, to try to do more there? Sure. So New England has long had a lot of small independent colleges and uh, has a history of mergers and closures that you can find on our website, actually. So for over 30 years, our commission has had something called, we pronounce it ARPI, Annual Report on Finance and Enrollment. And it's data forms on finance and enrollment and the audit and a narrative. And sometimes the commission will ask the institution to address something uh, specific in the narrative, such as um, increasing net tuition as a financial goal. 
And those are reviewed by a committee of senior financial officers who member colleges and universities in January or February, and they make recommendations to the commission at its March meeting. So at any given point, there are probably 12 to 15 institutions in the RFE process, plus others that are going through either the comprehensive evaluation or their interim that also gives that information to the commission. So the commission has experience in that. In April of 2018, Mount Ida College announced that it was closing rather precipitously in June after commencement, and that was a very uh, loud occurrence. And so Massachusetts, being willing and able to fund a robust state government, several branches of that government sprang into action. And I can talk about that more if you want, but the outcome is that a group called the Boston Consortium for Higher Education, which is the CFOs of some large independent uh, institutions in the Boston area, plus Rhode Island School of Design, working with Roger Goodman, who used to run the, the higher ed practice for Moody's and is now with the Yuba Group, came up with a system of 12 metrics. And the commission did it on a pilot basis this year with the independent colleges that are accredited in Massachusetts, and now has an MOU with the department, which under state law that was passed last November, directs the Department of Higher Education in Massachusetts to annually review the finances of independent colleges or universities, or can essentially work with the accreditor, which it's done with NETSHE to, to do that work. I think it's been helpful. Um, the commission voted recently to extend that to all independent colleges and universities in New England, plus the overseas institutions, and will set in motion to come up with a comparable process for public institutions, which is gonna be a little more complicated because most, but not all of them are in a state system. And as someone famously said, if you've seen one system, you've seen one system. So they're all gonna be slightly different, but that's important. Well, I also wrote to institutions in May, early May, asking them to be in contact if any of a series of things happen. Um, I can give you the whole list if you want it, but it has to do with liquidity, adverse action by the lenders, rescission of state support, and looking forward, and references the standards which talk about being in touch with the commission if there is, quote, an adverse event. I think colleges and universities in New England are very good at the candor factor, and I've been contacted by institutions. That will go out again to institutions, and the commission is also anticipating in October sending out a very short data form that's still in, in the process of being finalized um, to all institutions to see if something, if, the, if there are institutions out there that the commission should be in touch with because of uh, large problems with financial enrollment in the fall. Uh, it does sound like a, a pretty detailed way of monitoring, uh, you know, 12 metrics is pretty good. Uh, and you're, you're crossing two parts of the triad here. How much of a challenge, though, is it to adjust to such incredibly fast-moving adverse events that we're seeing right now? Where, you know, right right now, I'm I'm probably going to log off here and and check to see which colleges have reversed and going fully online in the last ten minutes. So, how, how can what you've designed adjust to this reality? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and um, I. I unfortunately won't know. Uh, I can tell you what we've been doing in the meantime, which is staying in close touch. I, I bet I, I bet I talk to 12 to 15 college presidents a week, just trying to listen to what they know, in addition to, of course, reading inside higher ed and, and looking at other unnamed publications uh, as well. 
Um, but just trying to stay in touch. And I, I don't, you know, if anybody made predictions now and, and they had any kind of um, concrete, definite metrics, I don't think, I don't think people would believe them because I think there's just so much unknown out there right now. And as you suggested, it changes day by day. We can talk about the Chronicle of Higher Education here. We like them too. <laughs> I used to work there. Um, you know, you obviously were in close communication with your peers at the other regional accreditors, you, you know the feds. How replicable is what Massachusetts and your commission did in other parts of the country? I think that's a great question. And even in other parts of, of New England, which you know has six smallish states, and there's incredible variety even in New England between Massachusetts and say Vermont, um, which has about a 10th of the population of Massachusetts and just doesn't have the capacity I think, to do what Massachusetts has done. Um, doing this in California would be a whole, a whole other game because it's just so enormous. And, uh, and figuring out how to, how to look at the public institutions as well as the independents. In some ways, the independents are a bit easier to look at um, because if they run out of money or students, they're gonna close or merge. And public institutions, um, nobody has the appetite at the moment that I know of to close a public institution. Um, they can combine them. They can, they can do things like uh, the, our commission voted recently to accredit the University of Maine system as an institution of higher education. So there are, there are sort of workarounds and combinations and new ideas emerging all the time, but closing one is, is not an idea. And so for an accreditor to make a judgment that this place just doesn't have the money to keep going is harder for a public institution than it is for an independent institution. I'm sure this is, this is clearly on the mind of all accreditors. I think specialized as well as uh, institutional accreditors, for sure. Public institutions, I would imagine the funding shifts, you know, it doesn't look good right now if you're higher education, but if the federal government comes through with another stimulus that does a lot for states and institutions, that could change the picture too. So, I mean, it, it seems like there's always going to be pretty substantial gaps when it comes to publics. Is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment. And, you know, we haven't recovered yet from, to pretty great recession levels of state support, which has never been high in, in New England. It, it varies quite a bit from, from state to state. I remember during the Great Recession, I said to the, about the University of New Hampshire that it had its state allocation cut. And the the bad news was it was cut in half, and the good news was it was only 12% to begin with. So, you know, it, it varies quite a bit, and, but the disruption of having, no matter what the number is, cut in half it is very hard to know. And there are states now that are talking about, they don't know what their budget is going to be. And so I think in some states, at least public institutions don't have a good idea. Some state, I heard of a state recently was talking about a, a one-month budget at first to get started, and another one that was talking about a three-month budget. Well, this creates more uncertainty, obviously, for higher ed as well as other, other parts of the state. So, you know, I know the federal government, the Department of Education under the Trump administration has looked at this issue. I don't really know what came of that, but what do you think is possible or aspirationally appropriate for the federal government in terms of trying to get more information to consumers about financial viability? I think that's a great question, and I'm not sure where that is going to be headed. I will say in Massachusetts, they now require institutions to, to post their audit. Not everybody can read an audit. You know, not everybody will know that. 
our commission has added an action recently called a notation, which is when the public, when the commission believes the public needs to know that there's a financial problem. I think, frankly, we could do more to make that publicly known to people, but it is a public action and it's on our website. Do you feel that there is a substantial problem in what is available to consumers who, like me, struggle to, to understand an audit. I mean, I, I probably know a bit more than, than most uh, traditional age college students, and uh, you know, just because I've done it, but how worried should we be, frankly, about students and their families trying to make decisions and potentially choosing to invest a major lifelong uh, investment decision in a place that might not make it? I think that's a great question. I think you and I could answer that better in about six months than we can now. But the truth is nobody knows how long this is going to go on. And, you know, it may start and then come back and it may go on, I've heard, for up to two years. And if it, you know, if things are, are better by next spring, that's one thing. If it goes on for two years, that's, that's another thing entirely. You know, we spoke with Nick Dukoff from Admit about this. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Admit's uh, foray into this space. Is there a role that could be done appropriately for the private sector to help fill in some of these gaps? I mean, I know there's some landmines here, but generally positive, negative about that? You know, I, I think having multiple perspectives is generally a good thing. One of the advantages uh, creditors have is that we can get current information. So to go back to Massachusetts, again, as an example, when they were thinking about a way to look themselves at the data, they, for whatever reason, didn't want to ask institutions to send them the current data. They were relying on publicly available information. And that is, you know, a year or two out of date. And right now, you know, by November being a year or two out of date tells you almost nothing. Related to that, I was thinking about private college industries push here. And I, I do understand it when it came to the financial responsibility scores from the feds, which everybody says are inadequate, wanting to push those back in this crisis because they felt like it could literally juke the numbers in a way that would make some colleges have to lay people off. They otherwise wouldn't have to. I don't think anyone wants that to happen. Um, do you feel like the dynamics of that are shifting at all? Uh, you know, like everything, um, you know, do you feel like the private college industry may take a different uh, approach in the way it deals with public data about financial sustainability? I, I think that'll be interesting to hear. I mean, I've heard predictions. Last time the Higher Ed Act was reauthorized, which seems like a very long time ago now, they took a very strong stand against, quote, the unit record system that would tie individual information together so students could be traced over time. And I'm told that their opposition to that is, is highly muted now, that I think people see that that's coming, that it's a necessity that the data are out there and that it, it's the responsible thing to do. Worrying about how it's used, worrying about how old it is, worrying about whether the parts do really add up is gonna be a really interesting, interesting thing. I am told on pretty good authority that when the college scorecard first came out, that it involved information that was being shared by two or three departments in the federal government that didn't have the authority to share information with each other and so that there were uh, USBs that were handed through a fence um, because they, they couldn't officially send information from one place to another. So, you know, even if that gets passed, can you imagine how long it will take to work out the details of actually putting all that information together? 
Yeah, that's a great anecdote and very uh, USA, our patchwork, uh, which has its pluses and its minuses, as frankly, we're seeing right now. But, you know, one of the real tough questions here is how alarmed uh, those of us who cover and care about the private college industry and, and frankly, colleges, period, should be going into this fall, recognizing there's a, a host of variables and things we can't possibly predict, but you are as well-placed as anyone, frankly, in a, a region that's been hit hard by enrollment pressures before this. You're talking to 12, 15 college leaders you know, a week. How worried are you? How, how serious do you think uh, the iceberg that looms could be? I'm, I'm very concerned about colleges and universities, and, and I think both public and independent. And again, I don't think anybody knows, but I know that there are some that could be easily destabilized by just, you know, an enrollment upset that comes along. I think the, the number of institutions that, as you suggest, pull back and are now going to go virtual is large. What the public reaction to that is going to be is hard to predict. I have a theory that there, that there are students out there now making multiple deposits. So when I hear so many presidents say that their deposits are up, it makes me nervous because I think they can't be up everywhere without people making multiple deposits, given, given the environment that we're in now. I think one reason colleges don't really know is that, um, and that may be cha change over the next several weeks, but for a long time and, and still now, I think families don't know, students don't know what they're gonna do. And, and if they don't know, then the colleges can't know. A lot of uncertainty, obviously, but as always, appreciate your perspective here. Um, you know, accreditation is not the easiest thing for journalists to cover, but you've always made it uh, relatively painless and, and make a lot of sense for us. So I always appreciated that. Thanks so much. Thank you, Paul. It's Thanks for your time. Catch you Thank soon you. and enjoy retirement. Thank you. <laughs> That's it for this episode of The Key. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with a personal interview to really bring home the struggles of folks at the City University of New York in dealing with the early pandemic this spring. I hope you'll listen. Thanks again.